This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. Hey. Hey, we are so excited. And um, listen, I just want to say thank you. If you're listening to this, uh, you're you're probably supporting us on Patreon. Uh, certainly, if you're supporting us in the Supervan category, you already got this and you're the first to hear it. And we wanted to honor your questions. We weren't able to get to every question, but we wanted to get to a lot of your questions. Uh, and uh, so I'm really excited. And I just want to say thank you. Starting uh, uh, knowing faith and our, our ability to grow this podcast has been largely in part because of your support and your help and sharing what you love with other people. And I'm tremendously thankful for that. Um, and I also have something exciting. If you are in the Patreon as a super fan, which many of you are, then starting in the spring, you will get our Knowing Faith episodes. Lord willing, if we can get all the tech with engineer Brad worked out, you will get them two days early moving forward into the spring. And we're really excited for you to get to be able to do that. Uh, if you're somebody who's listening to this and you're thinking, oh, well, I'm not on Patreon, but I'm excited to hear that, uh, then you could go to patreon.com slash knowing faith and find out more about some of the cool stuff that we have coming through Patreon. And so really excited. Want to say thank you if you're listening and supporting the show. That's very kind of you. And your questions are so good. There were so many of them and such good questions. Uh, and so we're going to address some of them right now. Let's start with Jeremy. Jeremy asked, if knowing Faith was a character on West Wing, who would it be? He's Jeremy has taken this to a meta level now. It's not just who are we as individuals on knowing uh, on West Wing, but what is if knowing Faith was a personified character, who would it be? Okay, but here's the deal. You have to get the character in your mind before we answer. Do not be okay. swayed because I want to see if any of us agree. Okay. All right. Let's. Let, I have it. Well, okay. Wow. Oh my gosh. Let me give me one more second. Maybe Engineer Brad can play some interlude music here, uh, like the. <laughs> da, 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 um, ooh, okay. I got it. I'm going last. Okay. Okay. I'm Go afraid. I'm afraid our listeners would say Mandy annoying, but something they have to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go with Josh. That Josh was my choice. Okay. I, I didn't pick Josh. Tell me why Josh. Because why did you? Because I think he's got a pretty decent sense of humor. Uh, doesn't take himself too seriously. Uh, and uh, yeah. He's got endearing moments, but he's also sometimes annoying. Mm-hmm. He uh, sometimes he, He's convictional, but sometimes he's yes. way too certain about very specific mm-hmm. yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Yep. Josh was my answer too. For those reasons. What was your answer, JT? I was the one who said you can't be swayed, but I think you may have just swayed me. My answer originally was going to be CJ Craig. Oh, I would have have gone for that. I I thought since that's who I see myself as being, I couldn't say that I identified the whole show with that character. (laughs) Good decision. Good, yeah. Why CJ Craig? Because it's like me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's awesome. CJ is always a part of the conversation. She's a trusted ally. She's... Funny sense of humor doesn't take herself too seriously. What's she does the jackal, right? Mm-hmm. She's yep, mm-hmm. life of the party. Great question, Jeremy. Uh, I love that. Uh, J- Jeff, uh, Jeff asks, is American civil religion a problem? Meh. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, you know, we're actually recording this um, the week after election week. So we haven't seen any. And here's the deal. The American civil religion problem, we need to be addressing it comprehensively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the American civil religion problem is not just a problem of the right, although the nationalism on the right makes these connections 
they make these connections on a very superficial standpoint. Let me give you a real quick demonstration. And guys, I know we're talking about politics. If you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. This is my take on it. If uh, Is American civil religion a problem? Yes, it's a problem for the right and the left. The right mm-hmm. makes very superficial connections on this front. America is God's chosen people. They have a special place in the life of the world. And so American history needs to be glorified and exalted and never questioned. That's a civil religion problem on the right. There is an American civil religion problem on the left as well. And that is not the exaltation of our country, but the exaltation of the individual in the life of our country. That is also a civil religion problem. Uh, and so we have, we have, we have a civil religion problem in, in America, but civil religion is not a uniquely contemporary problem. Rome had a civil religion. Rome had a obvious civil religion problem. I mean, Caesar was Lord. So they weren't even uh, trying to cover it. Not even, not even remotely close, Mm -hmm. you know? So when I hear people say, Oh man, American civil religion is a problem. It's a yes, but like all problems in the life of the church, it is neither unique nor new. It has been around since the ministry of Jesus and the political connotations of lordship in the New Testament are a demonstration of that reality. So anything to add to that? That was great. I don't think I'd add a lot. I, yeah, I agree. This uh, this doesn't really answer the question. I, I've, I've just been reading rereading a book that I read in seminary. It's a book published by Oxford University Press by Mark Knoll. It's called America's God. Uh, This is a pretty technical book, but if you're interested in some of the roots of American civil religion, this would be a great book to check out. I'm just going to read one paragraph real quick. He says, this is what the book's about. He says, the book's main narrative describes a shift away from European theological traditions that were descended directly from the Protestant Reformation. So he's saying, we're going to see a big shift in America's religion than what we saw in 16th and 17th century European religion. It's not an exaggeration to claim that 19th century Protestant evangelicalism differed from the religion of the Protestant Reformation as much as 16th century Reformation Protestantism differed from Roman Catholic theology from which it emerged. He's basically saying when we had, had you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century transitions to the Americas, our religion is as different from what we descended from, from uh, Western Europe, as much as the Protestant Reformation differed from Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. That is a That's big good. statement. Yeah, it is. And that this is kind of the roots of American civil religion on both the left and the right and how America conceived of her relationship with God. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And also, I want to co-sign that book. It's fantastic. So Anything by Mark Knoll, really. Not mm-hmm. anything, but most things. Um. All right, Austin on Patreon, what is the difference between the way that Jesus intercedes on our behalf and the way that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us? Is this the same work or different works? JT, over to you. (laughs) What is the difference between the way that Jesus intercedes on behalf and the way the Holy Spirit intercedes for us? Oh, man, I need to give this one some thought. I almost want to just, this is like constructive theology live. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that I would stand by what I'm about to say after I say it. Uh, But let me just kind of work through it because that's what we try to do in constructive theology. So we need to take into account that there is only one essence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enacted in three different persons. I think the only way that I would say that the, the way that Jesus intercedes for us, the way that the Bible talks about, is he's interceding for us as a mediator, as a God man, which is fundamentally different than the way that the Holy Spirit could intercede for us. The Holy Spirit does not have a second nature that has been assumed by the one person of the Son. Therefore, the Son intercedes as an empathetic high priest through the Holy Spirit because there's only one one God in, in one essence. So it is, 
it's largely the same, but I would say the son is mediating on our behalf in a way that the spirit was never intended to and mm-hmm. can't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. No, I would, I, yeah, I would say that that's right. Okay. Yeah. I would say when it comes to pr- like, if we were talking about prayer specifically or like address to God, I would say uh, that the spirit makes our words intelligible um, to God. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that this, the Holy Spirit takes our words. I think this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You think about even in Corinth or in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the Spirit searching the depths of God, even the depths of man. I would say that the Holy Spirit is taking our words and making them intelligible, intelligible to God in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the the role of Jesus in the Spirit in mediation intercession is different. So, yes, it's different. It's they're different works. Good job, guys. Bound together in the one undivided work of God, though, in relationship to His people. So, undivided but, acts. Uh, yep. Divided by the person. Yep. Uh, there are S- Samantha. There are so many different analogies to explain the Trinity, but most are heretical. Is there a good analogy that you know of? One that helps explain the Trinity to a child would be oh so helpful. (laughs) (laughs) It's the JT show. Well, I will say this, JT, I think this will warm your heart. Uh, I was walking around in the children's area at the village on Sunday, and we have the image, the fidget spinner image of the Trinity on the wall in the children's area that children can trace with their fingers. And so it's not that we would think that they would necessarily immediately understand the Trinity, but we start to give them some ways to to move toward that as they grow into their understanding. But I, I saw that and I thought, oh, this is like the JT wall. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, speaking of fidget spinners, for my 10th anniversary, Macy's going to get mad at me for sharing this story. Uh, I got Macy a new wedding ring with 10 small diamonds on it and one big one to signify 10 years. And she got me a fidget spinner. <laughs> <laughs> like a diamond fidget spinner or? Nah, no, nah, a fidget spinner. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Was there significance behind the fidget spinner? Nah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a fidget spinner. <laughs> I love that. Shout out to Macy. He just like keeps it went real. For it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. She, she, she also got me like a picture of significant dates in our life. It's like, wow, you spent $34.95 on our 10 year anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> love on a budget. Love on a budget. No, we had said we weren't going to do anything big. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to get you a ring. And then I got a fidget spinner. You know, that's uh-huh. 10 years in. Mm-hmm. Where we came from and now where we are. Okay, uh, yeah, don't don't use analogies. Uh, there are there is no sufficient analogy to describe God in His essence and in His acts. But there are simple ways to describe God. So don't think that you need to make it overly complex, and don't assume that you're going to say something that is immediately conceived in the same way that you you mm-hmm. as a teacher don't immediately conceive it. We're describing the indescribable. We're trying to give definition to the, in some sense, undefinable, at least without analogy. So a simple, a simple maybe definition for you to think about that can just be walked through almost in catechism style would be, we believe in one God who eternally exists as three persons, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. Each of those persons are fully God. That is we've, we've done that definition here before. I realize it's a, you know, it's, it's long, but, but what, what you're going for is one essence three persons, 
all persons are fully God. If you can find a way to describe that, one God, three persons, all persons are God, then I think you're there. And I actually think analogies do more to confuse than to help. So I would go more for just theological clarity than analogy. I would just add to that, that I think often as parents, we can see a child's developmental stage is an obstacle rather than an opportunity. Um, mm. God, When God gives um, himself to us in the language of the Trinity, he does so knowing that children will receive the teaching. And so um, you're allowed to let your child be at their developmental age and receive the teaching and to the level that they're able to at that age. So I think as JT is pointing out, um, be sure that you're talking about it in ways that you can maintain consistency with as your child grows older. Um, Don't be overly concerned with um, boiling down something that they're growing into. Just be sure that the way that you're talking about it when when you're talking about it um, is going to point them toward a mature understanding of it at some point. Our little catechism would do with Lydia. Who is God? God is Father, God Son, God the Holy Spirit, one great God. That's how we do it. And we have some little hand motions we do with it to to engage and interact with her. And then outside of that, we just try to, and I really think this matters, we try to speak of God in a Trinitarian way when we talk about God with one another. I don't think you can understate the significance of praying to God the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can understate the significance uh, uh, of when when talking about God, properly addressing um, Him uh, in His roles. I, I way I learned this as a kid was with so many of the traditional hymns that were built around a Trinity formula, and so each of the first three yep. verses would would address some aspect of, of one member of the Trinity. And then the fourth verse would kind of bring it all home. And so I think you could think in terms of that also is like, what music might I use to help um, so that children are, are learning um, memory tools that will assist them as their understanding grows to fit it. That's what Kyle's example is talking to also. Yeah. Joseph, Joseph asks, do you believe that the view of humans as primarily thinking creatures has led to an emphasis of preaching being the main task in discipleship rather than a more holistic lived discipleship? So the question, do you believe, do you believe that the view that humans as primarily thinking creatures has led to an emphasis of preaching being the main task in discipleship rather than a more holistic lived discipleship? <laughs> I. JT, say some words. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, this is a funny question for me to hear because in my, in the, in the all female environments I've spent so much time in, the idea that women have been considered as primarily thinkers is just almost foreign to me, but I understand it in terms of the church as a whole is an important one for us to address. So I'm interested to hear what JT would say. Yeah, no, Jen, I think you and I would probably hopefully answer this really similarly. And and Joseph, I think maybe a question back, like I'm not going to, I'm going to answer your question, but a question back to you is like, do you really think we've over-intellectualized the faith? And if so, I'd like to meet that person. Uh, like if there's, if there's a disciple out there that is only an intellectual thinking Christian, but not living holistically, that just hasn't been my experience either. Uh, study after study after study has come out saying, not only are we not making holistic disciples, we're making irrational disciples who don't have a firsthand knowledge of their sacred text to use Jen's language. And it's not like we've done this. Sometimes this can be construed 
in the history of ideas is happening post-enlightenment, that after the enlightenment, evangelicals and Christians adopted enlightenment, enlightenment ways of thinking about and teaching what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you study history, that's just simply not true. Uh, there certainly is massive impacts of the enlightenment on evangelicals, and I don't want to deny that. But if you go back to our, our podcasts through the book of Acts over and over and over and over again, what is the means and the method that the Spirit is using to bring about regeneration and repentance? The proclamation of, of Christ. I mean, you, yeah. you go literally, I mean, I've opened up Acts and you, you cannot go a page as I have it here, really beginning in Acts chapter two, where it isn't a very clear correlation between the preaching of the gospel, people being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and walking in new life through sanctification and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I, I actually just think, and I, Here's the Patreon Q&A, so maybe we can be a bit freer. I just think this is a false dichotomy that is actually a false narrative that we believed in evangelicalism. Some of my storyline staff here and I are even having this conversation right now of, wow, you know, what we really need to do is deprogram the church, have more holistic living, life-on-life stuff, because what we've done is, is we've intellectualized the faith. And what we really need to do is personalize the faith. And I'm just like, but like, as a, as a new Christian 10 years ago, my experience was not of Christians who knew their Bible. It was of a bunch of Christians who had a supposedly intimate relationship with Jesus in their heart, but couldn't tell you where the Psalms were. And so I just don't think we've over-intellectualized discipleship in any way. Mark Knoll at the beginning of his book, uh, gosh, what's the name of the book, Kyle? Uh, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Sorry, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. is He's addressing this question, and we say that there is a scandal of the evangelical mind that, that we're, we've over-intellectualized the faith, but he says the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one and that we have falsely assumed this narrative in our own heads that we are the intellectuals. Let me tell you this. I, I, I'm doing ministry in a fairly secular environment here in Colorado, and none of my neighbors think that evangelicals have over-intellectualized the faith. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good answer to the question. Um, I think that this is not, JT is not suggesting that the affective and the lived out or modeled aspects of the Christian faith are insignificant. It's just that this team is sees no demonstrable, anecdotal, or data-driven suggestion at all that Christians in America have too measured and considered and thoughtful a faith, that they have over-intellectualized it. So, I do think there might be something else that um, Joseph is getting at here. I don't want to put thoughts into his words that are not there, but there has been some interesting conversation about how the Reformation elevated the, the sermon uh, in the liturgy. Whereas if you go back to the Catholic liturgy or more Orthodox liturgies, there were all all of our five senses were engaged. You know, there were, it was, it was, um, and the elevation of the sacraments was where the focus was. Mm -hmm. And so I do think if that's what, if that's what Joseph is asking about, it is fair to say that, that um, with the Reformation, there was a shift toward um, the elevation of preaching. No, JT's making a face at me. It's not untrue. Like you're, what you're saying is right. It's really the way they set up the architecture where there was a shift. But the, the preaching of God's word was always Wait, central. You don't mean literal architecture. No, I do mean literal architecture. Like m many churches pre-Reformation would have had a different way of like, literally sitting. And in the Reformation, yeah. they change where the preacher stands. They change where the Lord's Supper is. They change where the congregation is, which yep. does lend itself to more of kind of a lecture hall driven environment. That's true. Mm -hmm. 
But what didn't change was the centrality of God's word being proclaimed, whether it was simply just read or preached in an expository format. Well, let's, okay, let's maybe hold it a little bit there, JT. <laughs> Certainly the Roman Catholic mat, the Roman Catholic mass at an institutional level was not as sermon driven as what we saw emerge from the Protestant church. Right. If we're talking about just the switch from like 15th century Catholicism to 16th century Protestant Reformation, yeah, there's a pretty big difference there. What I'm trying to say is over the 1500 years leading up to the Protestant Reformation, yeah. the church is largely characterized by a proclamation of God's word. Yeah. 2,200 years before the Reformation, there was probably a shift to kind of a more uh, higher understanding of the means of grace as administered through the Lord's Supper right. than was the the first thousand years. But again, if we just go back to our podcast on Acts, this yep. in, or, or if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what is central to God's people gathering? Preaching. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Or even in the early church, I mean, the ministry of John Chrysostom, for example, is a great example that preaching was a central way that the gospel was growing and being communicated in the world. Augustine, so, four, four hours on Sunday. Yep. Let's get back to that. okay but but i will say that if you are uh gosh this is gloves coming off but um we it it is probably oh boy i'm gonna we're gonna get in hot water here but uh preaching has taken on a different flavor and the preaching ministry of churches has taken on a different flavor as almost everything has in a digital landscape uh, where now the sermon is almost viewed as a uh, non-contextual transferable commodity Mm -hmm. that kind of can live on its own. That is, that is a newer evolution. And I would say we need to be very measured with how we think about the sermon moving forward because it has never been easier to hear very strong sermons absolutely divorced from a worshiping community, the Lord's Supper, a local church. Mm-hmm. You can watch them. You can listen to them. You can download them. You can share them. And all of that can be divorced from the context or the house of a sermon, which is the local church assembled. Yep. A lot to talk about there. Yeah. Okay, Bethany, Bethany, this one's for you, Jim. Um, A dear sister in my Bible study frequently steers the conversation to wider cultural, political issues in a way that neglects how the passage applies to our own hearts and lives. It's not necessarily wrong to discuss, but it does take precious time away from the more important and applicable issues we are facing in our daily lives. How can I help redirect and set expectations that this Bible study time is for letting the word transform our own lives rather than it becoming a commentary on how the world doesn't follow whatever passage we are discussing? Yeah, this is a really good question. It is a problem in um, any small group, typically, if a clear expectation is not set at the beginning. So it's hard to redirect if there hasn't been a clear direction set initially. So what you're probably learning is that um, the next time you start a study, uh, you may have to just get through the end of this one or or pull her aside quietly and have a conversation with her outside of the group time. But but if you set a clear expectation at the beginning um, for the whole room, that's, you know, those who are leading and those who are participating of, hey, here's what this time is for and here's what this time is not for. 
then you have then you have grounds to to reel the conversation in when it goes off track at, midway through a study. We were explicit, particularly in an election cycle, that though we feel like those conversations are important and they should be happening in 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 the context of of uh, of Christian community, that this particular setting was not the place for those to happen. And so it wasn't that we thought those were unimportant or unrelated to what we were studying. It was that we had a learning outcome that we wanted to honor. So if you start working that language in at the beginning and then keep reminding them as you move through, then a redirect is based on that initial direction. It doesn't feel to the person who's been doing it like it's coming out of left field or right field, depending on your political leanings. See what I did there? Um, Catherine, I am working on summarizing the connection between Cain and Abel's narrative and the Hebrew 12, 24 verse, which says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Can you talk more about the word that Abel's blood was speaking? What was it saying exactly? Why does the writer of Hebrews use this as the connection to Jesus, especially as the sprinkled blood seems more in reference to tabernacle temple practice than Abel's story? Thank you all. <laughs> you. You. You've done more in Hebrews than any of us have. Well, Genesis. I love the Genesis part too. Yeah. So if you think about the story of Cain and Abel, it's actually setting up a typology for us that we see through the rest of the Bible. Actually, the typology is technically already been introduced with the first Adam, and we know that the the the, the last Adam will come. So um, <clears throat> we have a firstborn son who basically is not the favorite. He's not the chosen son. It's the second second born Abel who receives God's blessing. And so that's setting up for us, obviously, like the stories of um, Ishmael and Isaac, of, of Jacob and Esau, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, the blood of Abel then is the blood of the the second born son who receives the birthright and the blessing essentially. Um, and it cries out for justice from the ground. It cries out for justice. And yet the blood of Christ, though it should have cried out for justice, it absorbs justice and cries out instead for mercy. So it speaks a better word. Ditto. I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, Matt asks, should Christians today pray in precatory Psalms? Yes. They should pray imprecatory psalms. What's an imprecatory psalm? Uh, well, imprecatory psalms are prayers that invoke judgment upon another. Uh, and so this is to pray to God or to speak to God or to pronounce judgment or curse upon another. Let me give you examples of imprecatory psalms. Uh, psalm 7, Psalm 35, Psalm 109, mm -hmm. Psalm 137. Mm -hmm. The, the, those are those are some of the psalms, um, things like break the teeth of the wicked, right? May may the wicked's children be fatherless and their wives widows. May they be blotted out of the book of the righteous. Those are different prayers. These are not. Um, nobody prints these on coffee mugs. Um, and uh, you know, it's I know true. some reformed guys who do. Maybe so. Um, but yes, the short answer is Christians should pray in precatory psalms. Uh, yes, we should pray that 
God's judgment is upon evil in the world and that the consequences of sin will be meted out in proportion to the evil. Keep in mind that imprecatory Psalms are the great enemy and the redefinition of enemy that we have in Ephesians 6 is what? Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that work in the heavenly places. So what are we praying for as Christians normatively when we pray the imprecatory Psalms? We are praying against the great enemy whose spiritual forces are still at work in the world. And we are praying that this great enemy who is Satan and all of the evil spiritual forces in the world will have their teeth busted out, will have uh, no uh, continued generations, will be removed from the face of the earth and from any sort of dominion. And we can pray those imprecatory Psalms knowing that this judgment will be meted out in the last days against the evil forces and not only where their present, their power be destroyed, but their very presence will be destroyed. So you guys know Elizabeth Woodson, my colleague mm-hmm. and friend, and she she actually was teaching the week on the imprecatory psalms for our psalm study that we just did, and she mentioned to me um, how people don't realize when they pray, even so, come Lord Jesus that they're actually calling down God's wrath on unbelievers. <laughs> I thought. Whoa, that's a really good word because people tend to pray that in an escapist frame of thought. Like, man, my life is really hard. I wish Jesus would return. But we Mm. need to understand that asking for the return of Christ is asking for the consummation of the kingdom, which involves this, this final accounting. Um, I think we would probably pray that prayer from a so more sober minded place if we did, if we did so. Uh, ben asks, when someone that you're discipling and helping through addiction has already confessed their sin, but has relapsed or given into temptation again, what do you say? This is obviously really complex. And I, it's a little bit out of, I think, our depth in terms of mm-hmm. just ministry. Um, Kyle, Jen, and I are ministers of the gospel, not professional therapists or addiction counselors. So what we are able to do is remind this people, this this person or group of people of God's grace and mercy that extended to them through the blood of Jesus and that we call them to repentance and pray that God would give them a long season of repentance and victory over whatever addiction they're walking through. We'd want to place them in community. We'd want to give them perhaps accountability structures within the context of the church, trusted friends and counsel and guidance. But it also might be time, depending on the severity of this addiction and the harm that they're doing to themselves or others, to get them in touch with some professional help, like professional counseling, professional therapy, a professional addiction counselor. Because one of the things that Christians need to be reminded of is to be a human being is to have a body-soul dichotomy, and that's a complex dichotomy. And sometimes the sin patterns that we develop aren't just a matter of, I should will myself harder out of sin, but Mm -hmm. they're actually deeply ingrained brain waves or chemical imbalances that that can develop over the course of years and even decades that require professional help that the church isn't qualified to walk through, not because the church doesn't believe in the power of the gospel, but in the same way that we would say, if somebody needs to get chemotherapy treatment or radiation treatment, we would send, we would go with them and pray with them and walk them to the doctor's office. But it's possible that some kind of additional treatment might be needed that would help this person walk in freedom over a, a longer period of time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I'm not laying this on Ben at all. Uh, he he he's probably he's probably doing a marvelous job with the person he's dealing with. But I would say that my experience um, in general with ministry in the local church is that we are too slow with this impulse to to realize that we're um, out of our depth on something that mm-hmm. could use real professional help. 
or, or, or at the very least help from someone who has seen a lot of this um, and, and has training. So that would just be my watchword on this is if you feel like you're in over your head, don't, don't think, oh, I just need the Holy Spirit to give me more light here. Maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you to go seek, um, seek the wisdom of those who are trained in this. I think that's really good. Uh, Sam on Patreon, uh, what are appropriate and inappropriate ways to administer the Lord's Supper? Should it always be done by an ordained minister during a worship service, or is there room for extemporaneous practice? <laughs> Kyle, you've done this at a wedding, haven't you? I, I had it at, not only did I, ha I had it at my wedding, um, and I had not given due consideration to the Lord's Supper. Um, yeah, but uh, didn't you also do it at somebody else's wedding and have like a mishap with flowers or something? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I stepped out of the way and uh, hit a giant stand with flowers on it and they crashed to the floor. And um, what, did, what did you do when the flowers crashed to the floor? Didn't even look back. Just literally <laughs> kept my eyes fixed ahead. Um, uh, looked ahead. Uh, imagine that it didn't happen. Listen, Samuel, I think this is a great question. Uh, we, our view of the sacrament, uh, Protestants in particular, um, have such a malnourished view that we're having to mm -hmm. rebuild the palate on these on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So just know um, that... Uh, this is an area where the church, and particularly the Protestant church uh, in our day and age, can grow significantly. What are appropriate ways to administer the Lord's Supper? I would just start with a baseline. The Lord's Supper is to accompany the preaching of the gospel and the gathering of the local church. So that would be what I would say is the normative practice of the Lord's Supper. Should it always be done by an ordained minister? I think it should always be overseen by or an ordained elder. I think that's part of what's going on in 1 Corinthians. I think some of our problems, uh, now that doesn't mean that uh, their uh, ordained pastors have to be the ones to actually pass out or distribute the elements, but I think you have a very hard time making sense of Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians regarding discipline and excommunication apart from pastoral oversight of the Lord's Supper. So for example, at Mosaic Church, we might have a guest preacher come in and preach, but when it comes time for the Lord's Supper, it will be a pastor of Mosaic Church overseeing uh, the, uh, the, what we might call the fencing of the table, so to speak. So yes, during a worship service. But he said, is there room for extemporaneous practice? And my guess is, uh, because many of us have been feeling this, is with, with church at home during a pandemic, are you seriously telling me I can't take the Lord's Supper with my family in a time of uh, odd circumstances? Is that what you're saying, Kyle? I, I want to say this as gently as possible. I would say that I would strongly discourage the Lord's Supper is not your family's meal. Mm -hmm. The Lord's Supper is Christ's family's meal. Uh, and the family of the church is a bigger family than any of our individual households. I would say that I would discourage anybody from taking the Lord's Supper independent of the assembled body of Christ church that they belong to. Now that is not to say that any local assembly is the whole of Christ's body, but that any local assembly is an outpost of representation of Christ's body uh, when uh, a true church organized uh, under the gospel and healthy pastors. So 
I would not encourage. Is there room for extemporaneous practice? Yes. Do, should you do it? No. That's my encouragement. <laughs> That's not encouraging. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, what, I mean, he asked the question. I mean, it wasn't like I was like, let me firebomb Lord Supper. Uh, Kyle's right, though, because the implications here are serious. We've, we have a complete, mal- Kyle used the word malnourished, but also like a misconstrued understanding of how the ordinances relate one to another in the context of the local church. Whether that how 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 it relates to baptism, how it relates to the gathering together, how it relates to uh, the biblically prescribed offices of elder and deacon in the context of the church, and so the, this is really a an example of a of a lack of an ecclesiology among evangelicals that which is why we would go forward with well my son hasn't been baptized yet but can I give him the Lord's Supper anyway? No, like that's a misunderstanding of how baptism and the Lord's Supper function. Well, can I do it outside the context of the local church? Well. I guess you can, but you shouldn't because this is this is how Christ preserves his people and it's how the church uh, is able to meet out accountability for God's people for those who are walking outside the bounds of the Christian faith. So this is, is people typically think of this question in terms of just pure pragmatism. And I understand that. Like I'm not, that's not shots fired. It's just, well, I want to, so can I? Without thinking through how this is Christian doctrine is like a Jenga puzzle. And if you pull this piece out, You've got to reconfigure the entire function of ecclesiology in the context of the local church. Can you define ecclesiology for people? Of course I can. Thank you, Jen. I was just waiting for you to ask so you can play your role. Uh, It is ecclesiology. Ecclesia means gathering. And so ology is just words about the gathering. So it's words about the local church. So ecclesiology is the doctrine of Christ's church, both universal and local. And so when we talk about ecclesiology, evangelicals have a malfunction, a malnourished or a malfunctioning doctrine where we've actually used and appropriated other categories like a CEO model or um, this is just one of many nonprofits that can proclaim the gospel rather than taking a biblical view that, that gives us how we, are, how we ought to function as local churches. Uh, Adrian, on uh, do you have any ideas about how to incorporate biblical literacy and theological foundations for children, more specifically nursery through fifth grade in our churches? Any recommendation of children's ministry leaders to listen to or read? Yeah, so I I, I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, I, I think this is something we've had, JT and Kyle and I have had conversations about that uh, the way we're educating children, the way we're thinking about Christian education for children should be pointing toward uh, the full scope and sequence of what we hope to send them um, into the world with as adults. So therefore, what we're teaching in our children's areas should should be the foundation pieces for what we want them to be moving toward as they mature. So uh, I mentioned the the fidget spinner that was on the wall, the illustration of the Trinity that's on the wall in the children's area at my church. Um, the other thing that we have on the wall now, which I think would give a lot of joy to both JT and Kyle, is a timeline of biblical events, a visual timeline that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation with the major events of the scriptures. And then we have um, songs that we've written. Uh, There's a song that has the 40 uh, major events of the Bible. These are 40 events that, that, that that the children's ministry settled on. So don't be like, oh my gosh, there are exactly 40 events. No, I mean, they were writing a song and they needed a way to, you know, figure out how to do it. 
in a memorable way. But um, so what we're doing there is we're teaching the, the Christian story, right? We're teaching them the story of the Bible. Um, we're teaching Christian belief. We're looking for ways to train children in um, what is true about God. So our children are learning about the attributes of God uh, and then and, and additional uh, doctrinal truths that we can weave into that. And then um, Christian formation, that they're being trained in how this then should shape the way that they love God and love neighbor in practical ways. So um, who should you be listening to? Um, You know what? I wish I had a better list for you. I'm not saying that these things aren't out there. Um, At the Village, we put some of our things out for other people to 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 see, but we really only want to put out things that we have really um, had a chance to to lab to use in our church in meaningful ways before we put them out. Um, but JT and Kyle, have you seen churches that are doing this well? Or what are you guys doing at your churches? Oh man. Um, so I think one of the things that we've done, and I've mentioned this, I think before in the podcast, and this is a fruit of the excellent leadership of one of our staff members, our minister, Antonia Bastian. She helps oversee women's ministry and family, family ministry. And one of the things that we did was we incorporated, so we were studying Ruth this fall. So what we did is we essentially built a uh, elementary age Bible study to accompany that Mm -hmm. so that men and women participating in our Ruth study could then go home and share what they were learning with their kids in an age accessible way. And it actually mirrors the same um, strategy that we take to our men and women's Bible study environments, read the Bible, um, do some homework discussion, then listen to uh, uh, an age-appropriate teaching. Yep. And I was incredibly impressed with that. If you want an example of what that could look like, you can just go, I'm bragging on them. I, mean, I had nothing to do with it. MosaicRichardson.com slash roof. You can see kind of what they did there. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible way to build in Bible literacy to a group that's this young. The other thing on theological foundations, we created a doctrinal shorthand that we use not only for our kids, but also for our people as a way of kind of a providing a compass to our statement of faith. So the doctrines, the core four foundational truths that we're looking to communicate in our children's ministry are also the four foundational truths we use at Mosaic in our benediction. They come up in our preaching all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's a way of helping people see a unified whole. That's God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. Uh, and so that's a way of trying to knit together adult and family ministry in a way that is building and developmental and reciprocal. So yeah, I would say- That's really good. And what you're hearing, I hope, in both of these responses is you don't want to approach children's or students' ministry as niche ministries. You want to see Mm -hmm. them as the first layer that you're going to continue to layer on as as children grow up. Um, And as Kyle, you know, has said, I love the integration between the adult Bible study and what the children are doing in terms of Bible study, because if you read all of the data, um, one of the number one reasons that children stay in the church into adulthood is because they have learned to read their Bibles. So um, it can't be that someone is just telling them what the Bible says. We need to be giving them tools to get into it themselves. Adam asked, uh, who should I vote for? (laughs) He said, said, just kidding. Um, How should we think about the childhood of Jesus? Does he know his divine status from birth or does he come to realize it over time and it's eventually confirmed at his baptism? Love the show. Keep up the good banter. I mean, work. <laughs> so thank you, Adam, for the shout out. Go um, for it, How JT. should we think about the childhood of Jesus? Uh, yes. So again, e- even in his infancy and childhood, he is the God man. And so it's not that 
uh, his divinity somehow matures over time, but we do see his humanity maturing. The Bible tells us that Jesus grows in stature and wisdom. There's also things that he says in adulthood that he doesn't know about. So again, I know that this gets very complicated. So I want to try to make it as simple as I can. But Orthodox Christology handed down, certainly in scripture, but then defined for us with clear language in the Chalcedonian Council and Creed, would tell us that Jesus Christ has two natures, but yet one person. So think of like a overlapping Venn diagram with the middle part being his person and the left side of the Venn diagram being his humanity and the right side being his divinity. Anything that you can say about the left side, you can say about that middle person, Jesus. He, he, he is omnipresent, omnicompetent. Um, he, is, he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He's the creator of everything. He sustains all things. So you can apply everything in the left category to the middle category, but you can't take everything from the left category and apply it all the way over to the right. So we couldn't say his divinity was like being a human or vice versa. So when you when you think of a question like this, did Jesus know about his divine status and divine identity from his birth? Yes and no, because in his divinity, he knows, and in his humanity, he does not. And so what is a seeming contradiction is actually what orthodoxy embraces as faith. And anytime you try to relieve the tension, maybe a better way to say it is this, heresy seeks to relieve the tension that orthodoxy demands. And orthodoxy is demanding attention of us here where we, we can say two seemingly contradictory things are true at the same time. So in his infancy and even in his adulthood, Jesus knows who he is and he also doesn't know some things in his humanity. Anything you'd add to that, Jenner Kyle? Nope. Nope. Um, do you know what? Uh, uh, do you know what's funny? There are, uh, if you're familiar with the Apocrypha, yeah. There's like a lot of apocryphal writings about yes. Jesus's childhood and some of, of them some of them are amazing. Just Google <laughs> apocrypha childhood of Jesus. Like there's one time where he's playing in the mud and Mary rebukes him for playing in the mud and then he takes a like mud clay pigeon that he's made and like makes it into a real pigeon and it <laughs> flies away and she's like, "Wow, look at the power of my my son Jesus." Um, and uh, it's also it's just a hilarious story. I just it's hard for me to capture it, but if you've never read it, it's worth googling for for just some interesting tidbits. Um, Grace, I know that going to the creation account will be an interesting conversation. Hopefully, it was Grace. I've recently moved from a literal to a metaphorical understanding of its meaning. The Bible focuses on relationship with God, not a scientific t creation techniques that are above our understanding. The theory of evolution doesn't necessarily attack creation, but how does the fall tie in with that? Do y'all think it happened like in Paralandra? The world was evolved, but their Adam and Eve had been placed there brand new. Um, you guys familiar with Paralandra? I am. I'm a big fan. Great. Um, uh, this is an interesting question, Grace. There's a lot here. So let me just go with maybe the last question you ask. Do y'all think it happened like in Paralandra? Uh, you know, that's a very interesting question. I think part of me is like highly sympathetic to that um, because I love that book. So, yep. Um, if you're not familiar with Paralandra, it's a part of the science fiction trilogy that C.S. Lewis wrote, which gets a lot of, it's not as nearly as played up as Chronicles, but is a very interesting and very strong 
trilogy. It's really good. Mm -hmm. But do I think the world evolved and Adam and Eve were placed there brand new? Uh, I mean, that's a pretty tough question. Um, it is because by evolution, you can mean a lot of things. You can mean microevolution, meaning evolution within species or kinds. You can mean macroevolution, meaning evolution from maybe non-animate life to animate life or uh, animate but not conscious life to animate and conscious life. There's a lot of different ways to take this. I think Paralandra is a beautiful rendering of the substance of the Christian creation account. Do what I say. It's a shot-for-shot shot remake. No. I don't think it is. I think there would be some significant problems with it if it was. But I do think that it is fair to say that Paralandra is a beautiful and poetic rendering of the prime substance of a Christian doctrine of creation. That's a good answer, Kyle. Kelly, what does Sabbath look like for you and your spouses? I love Sabbath. You guys want to talk about this? Sure. Sabbath? I think we should talk about it, but I'll be the first to admit I'm not very good at this. I love Sabbath. Uh, I uh, I, uh, I struggle with Sabbath as well. I think probably all three of us do. Um, Sabbath looks like for us, we do not do, I, we don't engage in work or toil. It doesn't mean that we don't work with our hands or create things or cultivate things. It just means we step away from the ordinary busyness of our work weeks and we step into a restful vocation. But like for my daughter and I, we bake every Sabbath. I want to work with my hands because during the week I work with my mind and we bake uh, We bake on Sabbath. That's one of the things that we do. Um, we spend time in the word. We have a little bit longer period of prayer, both as a family and as individuals. I'm an introvert. And so my wife typically tries to create some space for me to be alone with the Lord and his good gifts and I try to take some of that time. And then I, we also try to engage together with friends and family and neighbors. We'll go for a walk. We try to live that day slowly and intentionally. Those are some of the things we do on Sabbath. How come no one has mentioned naps? Am I alone in that? No, no. You can nap, nap on the Sabbath. I take naps mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's an extra special nap on Sundays. I sleep so hard on Sunday afternoons. After mm-hmm. preaching three sermons right now, I come home and I'm dead to the world for like two hours. My kids could like be drawing on my face and I wouldn't know about it. Oh, I'll let Thomas know that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see the video (laughs) capture of that later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with Kyle. We do things, we do things that restore our souls. You know, we, I, I, I bake or I garden or take walks, that kind of stuff. The things that are, that don't count toward me being quote, uh, productive in a, in a vocational sense. Yeah. That's good. Angela, how, why do we believe the serpent in the garden was Satan? Was it? I feel like so much of our understanding of the devil comes from pop culture and it's hard to separate folk theology from actual Bible teaching. Well, that's true, Angela, you're right. A lot of what we think about the devil and demons comes from pop culture and it's hard to separate folk theology from actual biblical teaching. To the other question, how, why do we believe that the serpent in the garden was Satan? Was it? Well, was the serpent in the garden Satan? Uh, I mean, I think we we certainly don't... Um have any reason to want to distance him from that scene. And I think that the the way that we see him spoken of elsewhere is in serpent-like terms. And so that tells me that we're probably supposed to be drawing that very tight connection. That's what I would say too. Anything to add to that, JT? Nope. I mean, he's called the father of lies. I think that's one of the references that ties him very tightly to that passage yeah. because um, we see the very first lie being told. So... Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any reason to say that that is a direction we wouldn't want to take the the uh, the interpretation. Agreed. 
Uh, what is up with Matthew 27, 51 through 53? It seems out of sequence in the narrative. It's only mentioned in Matthew. There seems to be a general consensus that they returned their, to their homes and then died again. Is there a theological reason why they would need to die? Why would they need to die again? Couldn't God simply take them like Enoch? Um, we actually dealt with this passage when we were going through uh, the gospel of Matthew uh, we dealt with this passage, gosh, was it two years ago now? Yeah. We mm-hmm. dealt with Matthew 27. So you could look back on the archives and probably find a little bit of this in there. But the passage in question is, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened uh, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy cities and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake, what took place, they were filled with awe. Wait, am I reading the right passage? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so there seems to be a general consensus they returned to their homes and then died again. Is there a theological reason why they would need to die again? Couldn't God simply take them like Enoch? I don't know. I don't know I, either. I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. And the earth shook, the tombs were open, many had fallen asleep were raised. Outside I'm, of it being, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'm less concerned about what happened with these people because I think we have Lazarus, you know, kind of right. as a pattern for this. Yeah. I'm more concerned about Enoch. That's the one that throws me for a loop. I'm like, Enoch and Elijah. I'm like, what was happening there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, why did those guys not experience death? But um, yeah. this passage to me, I'm like, sure, they could just be like Lazarus because you know they're a they're a, a sign. They're functioning as a sign of a of a future full resurrection. Yeah. Uh, but I don't I don't understand why Enoch and Elijah just skipped that part. I'm happy for them. I just don't understand yeah. it. Good. Uh, Leon Morris says in his commentary on Matthew, he says, so those raised went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. Since there are no other records of these appearances, it appears to be impossible to say absolutely anything else about them. I'm good stopping there. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> yeah. But he does say, but Matthew is surely giving expression to his conviction that Jesus is Lord over both the living and the dead. Yes. And that one day those who are in Christ will be raised to eternal life. Yeah. Yep. Main things are plain things. I love it. Mm-hmm. Main things are plain things. And that's a good place to end for today. Hey, listen, I am truly grateful for all of you who are listening to Knowing Faith and are supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for doing that. We're really excited to have you listening and supporting the show. Um, if you've ever got feedback, please feel free to message through the Patreon. I love getting to talk with listeners on that medium on that avenue. Thank you for jumping into the conversation. You guys know where you can find us on social media. We're at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, you're on Patreon already, so you don't need to know that Patreon exists. But I am excited that next semester we get to offer some more kind of incentives uh, and really as a way of just saying thank you for your support of the show. So anyways, thanks for sticking with us. And we hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.